Everybody, I'm sure, is still waking up after their Thanksgiving coma, and um, whether you went out of town, stayed in town, or or uh, went on ice ski. Anybody in here go to go to the ice ski trip? <laughs> Sounds like it was good. Um, it's it's really good to be here tonight. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to keep going through a journey of faith that we're learning about in Hebrews 11, and. What Hebrews 11 is all about is, is the idea that um, not just that we're saved by faith, which is the main message of Hebrews, that we're saved by faith through the high priest Jesus, but in Hebrews 11, the, the author is giving his audience, a Jewish audience, examples of how their forefathers, uh, and men and women who've come before them, who they look to uh, as examples, their examples actually of faith more than anything else. And so tonight we come to a big character, but... But before we, we get into the text, I just want to say that all this talk about faith, all the, the journeying of faith that we've been doing here lately, it, it makes me think a lot and reminisce a lot about an experience that I had last month. And it's hard to believe that it was only last month, but, but in early October, I went to Ecuador uh, with a group of people. Is anybody here, was anybody here on that trip? Is anybody here on the first trip? Yeah. Right. <laughs> still, still repping strong, yes. So, so there were a lot of amazing things that we did in Ecuador. We painted schoolhouses. We worked on, on property that's going to be an eventual uh, training site for leaders and pastors in the area. We worshiped at a church in Spanish, which was amazing. Um, we did so many amazing things, saw so many sites, um, saw kids that were just the cutest kids you'll ever see in your life. But if there's one thing that affected me the most, uh, more than all those other things, more than the fellowship, more than um, all the blessings that we saw was it was the fellowship and the time that we got with the missionaries who were there to to leave this place and to go there where uh, these missionaries these men and women have given their lives have given their time have given their money have given their ambitions their futures their goals have given all those things to the lord so that they could be used by him in, in a place where there are people who are unreached it was really a marvelous thing to be around and to see. And I walked back um, here after that trip. I didn't walk back. I flied back, but uh, flew back. But after I got back, there we go, um, I found myself saying over and over again, God, give me faith like that. God, give me faith that, that when you call, when you, uh, w- when you say go, that I go. Um, even if it's here, even if it's across the street or across town or whatever it is. It was really inspiring to be around people who, whose faith was so evident um, that it was obvious, and, and that's what Hebrews has been all about, and that's what, what we're told here at the beginning even of, of chapter 11, that faith is the conviction or, or even the evidence of things unseen. So tonight as we get in uh, to these verses, I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to go through verses 8 through 10, and we're going to cover three verses that really just get to the heart of the beginning of, of Abraham. So starting with verse 8, it says this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he, was, when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So starting off with verse 8, uh, we, we read this again. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Now, this is, this is setting up something big, and it's big because Abraham is a big deal. 
Um, Abraham is really the, the father of the faith, but not just the father of, of the Jewish faith um, or the Christian faith, Muslim. Uh, the, Islam also claims him as well. And so he's, he's really revered, probably one of the most revered men in all of history in terms of, of religious faith. Uh, so we start off reading that Abraham did something. And, and if we're going to learn about Abraham, about who he is, um, we're not going to sing a song called Father Abraham, which doesn't teach us much about who he is and move our arms and our heads and things like that. We're going to go back to the original text uh, where this is starting, where this story is told. So up here on Genesis, uh, on the slide is Genesis 12, 1 through 4, and it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and kindred and your father's house to the Lord, uh, land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, uh, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. And so in, in order to figure out what's happening here, what, what's taking place, we have to see where we're at in the world. So if you can put up my map, what we see here is, is we see three locations. We see... Um, Ur, and then at the top we see uh, Haran, and then on the bottom uh, left we see Shechem and Bethel which, and Jerusalem, which are a part of Canaan. So what happened was, is before the call of Abram, Abram's father Terah had been raising his family in Ur. Terah leaves with Abraham, with Lot, with Sarah, and their descendants after them, and they go up to, to Haran. It's, it, was a, it was a big intersecting place where travelers would stop. And, and while they were there, uh, Terah died. Abram's father died. And, and so they had settled there for a time. And, and so what happens is the Lord comes to Abram here in Haran. And, and he, he tells him to do some things. He says, go, uh, and, and then I will make you a great nation. Uh, he's 75 years old, so, so he's asking him to do something that, uh, by our standards, is kind of in his, his empty nesting kind of second retirement age, uh, though he's had no children yet. But he's asking him to do something that's big. He's asking him to, to leave some things, leave, uh, leave the life that he had started to build in Haran. He'd ask him to, to leave the family that was, that was there before him, uh, definitely to leave the land that he would have had and the inheritance he would have had from his father, Terah. So he's asking him to leave a lot uh, to go to a land that he will show him, a land that, that he will inherit someday. Now, it's really fascinating to see what happens because in, in all other religions, and a matter of fact, in all the other uh, parts of, of this part of the world, what had happened was that the religion uh, had turned from, from, from Noah's people after the flood being saved by God to, to all the peoples of the earth worshiping other gods. And, and so you have polytheism, you have uh, nature gods and gods of everything uh, and anywhere in between being worshipped. So, so you've got uh, Abram, this polytheist, 75-year-old, uh, not special man called out by God, approached by God uh, to go. And, and, and the scripture here in Genesis just said that, so Abraham, uh, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. God said, Abraham went. There was a cause and an effect. So Abraham obeyed. And, and what, we, what we're going to see tonight, three things we're going to learn about faith um, are going to be pretty clear from the text. The first thing we see is this, is that faith leads to obedience. So faith leads to obedience. Looking back at, at uh, verse 8, we see this really clearly, that the first thing that Abraham's commended for is that he obeyed when he was called to go. 
Now, the word called here is, is really, really fascinating because it's, it's, it's not just when he was um, spoken to. It's not just when he was approached. It's when he was charged to do something, when he, was, when he was given a task. So God had given him a task, and he didn't waver. He went. And, and, and as we go further in the verse, we see that uh, he went to a place that he would receive, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit later. But, but it said he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, it's not that, Ab- it's not that Abraham was blind completely. Um, he, he, he generally seemed to have a, an idea of the direction that God was taking him in. But, but this word for knowing is not the normal Greek word for, for knowing. The normal word would have been gnosis, which would mean knowledge. And, and, and that would imply like data and facts and just specifics, knowing, knowing like the general details. Uh, what, what the word here is that's used as epistemi, which has more to do with an understanding or a comprehension so it wasn't that Abraham didn't have directions. It, it's, that, it's that Abraham didn't fully understand what he was doing, but he went. He didn't understand all the little, all the little uh, directions of the plan. He didn't understand the full purpose yet. But he went, as the Lord had told him. He definitely was obedient. And the great thing about this overall is that we see that this sets up a really good pattern um, that we see all throughout Scripture, that, that God calls, God initiates, and then man responds in obedience. It's really easy to think that every time we talk about obedience that we're, we're getting legalistic or we're getting, um, we're getting all fire and brimstone, but we're not getting that way. We're, we're not going there. What, what we're doing is, is realizing that, that there exists just the pattern of God being the initiator and man being the responder. And every other religion except for Christianity has it, has it the other way. Um, in every other religion, man works his way to God, and based on his good works, he maybe gets, gets to know God, gets to serve God. But in Christianity, it's different because God comes to man. God sought Abram, a nobody who wasn't seeking God. And he called him to do something that would eventually lead to the establishment of his people. He's calling a nobody to eventually be the father of the entire faith, the father of God's people. When I think about obedience, it it brings me back to um, the kind of obedience that we see in the scriptures in the New Testament. And in the gospel specifically, there's two types of obedience that you see. And one is, is, is superficial obedience. Obedience that's on the surface. Obedience that might look good, but it's disconnected from the heart. Certainly a Pharisee would embody this. A Pharisee would have been a man, a religious leader, who knew the law, who knew the scriptures, who knew what God had said, who knew God's directions who would know every, every letter, every, every T that was crossed, every I that was dotted, he would know that. And on the outside, at first, he might look good. But what you see exposed, as Jesus teaches over and over again, is, is that the Pharisee was, was a cup that on the outside looked great, but on the inside looked dirty and unwashed. Somebody who was serving um, really well on the outside at first glance, but on the inside had no heart connection to it whatsoever. And in the end, they weren't serving God at all. They were really serving themselves and their own self-righteousness. Now, if you contrast that with true obedience, and obedience of the heart, you certainly would think of somebody like blind Bartimaeus. Now, in, in Mark 10, you've got this story of, of blind Bart, this, this blind beggar laying on the side of the road leading into Jerusalem. And you have Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, uh, on his triumphant entry, when he's going to be on a donkey riding in uh, to fulfill scripture, but almost to mock those who, who think that, that he's going to be something different. But we have Jesus getting ready to ride into his kingdom. 
And, and then this blind beggar on the side of the road just, just keeps yelling out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's all he says. And he says it louder and louder, even though the disciples try to hush him up. So Jesus turns, he looks over to him, he gets in his face, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I want my sight recovered. So he's a man who knows his need. He's a man who knows that he needs healing. And somehow he knows that he's talking to the physician. And so what happens is, is Jesus miraculously and instantaneously heals this man of his sight. He's gone his whole life without seeing anything. And all of a sudden, his eyes are opened. Now, he didn't know anything before that. He didn't know the law. He didn't have the right pedigree. He didn't have the right degree from the right institution, so to speak. But he knew that he once was blind and now he saw. So the only thing we read after that is that, is that because of what had happened to him, Bartimaeus picked up whatever he had, which probably wasn't much, but the point is that he, he picked up everything he had and he followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? The man who has nothing, the man who's blind, the man who's worthless, because the Savior heals them, gets to, he gets to follow him into his kingdom. So, so you've got this superficial obedience, this Pharisee, and you've got a blind man made well, obedience to the heart. And my question is, which one are you? We're all trying maybe superficially to, to produce something that is genuine, but, but is, the, is the, the obedience that you're giving, is that, does it just look good on the outside? Or is it connecting to your heart? Now, you may be one of three categories of faith. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks in Hebrews, is, is that we're seeing faith in, in three forms, the non-existent, and then the, the fragile faith, and then faith that's tender. So you've got non-existent, which means there's nothing there. You don't believe in anything. You're wrestling, but you don't know with what. And then you've got fragile faith, where, where you're, you're like a cup that's on the corner of a table, and, and you're, any way the wind blows, you could fall off, because, because it, it, it's just that fragile. And then you've got someone who has tender faith, who is not perfected by any means, but but they're being molded and shaped and seasoned by the truth of the gospel. Their character is being changed. So if you're discouraged uh, tonight in this room, specifically for the non-existent or, or the fragile, you may be tempted right now to, to, to be realizing that if, if there's a call that God is placing to you, um, if you don't know him, maybe the call is to know him and follow him. If, if you do know him, but you're, you're trying to give him this negotiating stance. You know, God's saying, come follow me, or come do this, come do X, Y, Z. And your temptation is to, is to go back at him and say, well, but what, what do you have for me? Can I have the business plan? Can you give me a list? I'll take a, a pro and con uh, markup, and at the end of it, I'll look at it and decide whether it adds up to be in the positive, and then I'll go. Maybe we don't say that, but often that's what, that's what, that's what run through our so it goes through our heads when we, when we get this proposition to go. Whatever go means in your life, go. Abraham's faith wasn't in the end measured um, as high and wasn't, wasn't condemned because he took a hundred steps. He's commended because he took one step. And then another. And then another. And then another. Until he got there. But we're going to keep going here. We're going to look at the, the second verse in our text here. 
So verse 9 says this, By faith he went to live in, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So again, if we're going to look at what we're getting at here, the story that we're, that we're approaching, we're going to go back into Genesis 12. And we're going to read the next four verses, Genesis 12, 5 through 8. It says, When Abraham took, uh, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother, uh, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem in the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord and who had appeared to him. From, from there he moved to the hill country uh, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So again, we need to realize what's, what's been taking place. So if you look, Abram's gone with his father from Ur to Haran. And in Haran, God approaches him and says, go. Go to a land. I'll show you what it's going to be. You'll possess it. And I'm going to do great things through you. Then Abraham goes. So he obeys. So he's, he's, his faith that he has has led to obedience. But what happens is when he leaves Haran, uh, he, he's got a trek. He's got a journey. Now, if you look at the key down there, you're going to realize that that's about 100 uh, kilometers or so, which if you do the math, you're going to realize that it's a few hundred clicks to get to, to, get to, to Shechem and Jerusalem and Canaan to get there. So it's not an easy journey. And I know iSki took a whole bunch of minivans to go out to Colorado and come back. This is, this is no iSki. This is no minivan. This is, this is no, you know, there's no planes, trains, or automobiles. They're on foot or on horse or on donkeys, and it's hard. Uh, and so the, what, what, what's really key about what he did was that Abraham, Abraham didn't leave uh, and, and do a reconnaissance mission by himself to check out uh, everything and see if it was good and then come back and then bring everybody and everything if it, was, if it was good enough. He immediately left with everybody, with what he had. The family, that, that his wife, his cousin, the family that was after them, the possessions he had, they took everything and put it on the line. And so the next thing that we'll look at here as we, uh, as we look at what he did, we read that, that he built altars. He set up altars at, at Shechem and also, also between Bethel and I. So there's a picture here that, that I want to put up here. This is, this is Shechem. This is, uh, I'm sorry, that's not Shechem. This is Bethel and I. You've got Bethel to your back, and you're facing east, looking toward I. And if you notice something about this, th- this is pretty typical of the whole land that they traveled and where they got. Um, number one, it's not going to be fun to, to walk. It's not a really forested, soft ground area. You pretty much have limestone and rock, flat rock all over the place that you're traveling on. It's not very comfortable. But another thing that you can see is there's, though there's some trees here, a few olive trees, you're pretty much going to have a scarce, wide open land. And so if, if Abram is building altars, if he's building these things to commemorate the name of the Lord, it's going to be pretty obvious to those around him. It said in Genesis 12 that the Canaanites were still in the land. And so, so if I'm a Canaanite and I walk upon this strange thing that looks different that says the name of, of Yahweh be praised here, I'm going to start wondering where did this come from and who, who made this? And then one of my Canaanite friends would, would look at me and say, well, I think it's, I think it's that, that pilgrim Abram and that crowd of people that he brought through. I think he stopped and built that. 
So, so Abraham's taking his family, his possessions, and he's also staking his reputation on the line. And so where we first learned that faith leads to, to obedience, uh, in, in verse 8, we see here that faith leads to commitment. Faith leads to commitment. And it may seem simple. It may seem like pretty elementary math, but, but it's not. Because the difference between obedience and commitment is this. Obedience is doing what you're told to do. Fulfilling an obligation. I'm obeying my command. Commitment's different. Commitment is offering of myself for the sake of the mission. Commitment is being invested. Commitment's having a stake in the matter. Whether this goes north or south, it's going to make a difference in my life. And so we see a lot of what, of what Abram had, had, had put up and put on the line and put on the table to do this. So we look back at verse 9. It says, by faith, uh, he went to live in the land of promise in Hebrews 11. And, and as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. The phrase here, as we start off verse 9, he's living in the land of promise. He's, he's a pilgrim, a nomad, making his way through this land. And, and it's called the land of promise because, because once he got there, it didn't become his. He, he comes to this land that... that that he's going through and that he knows he will possess one day, but it's not his. And it's not his people's yet. As a matter of fact, this, this piece of the promise, this land of promise, doesn't even become a fulfilled promise until at least 400 years later, when, when after the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, uh, Abraham's people, after he had been long dead and gone, and going through the wilderness with Moses, and then Moses dies and Joshua assumed command, Joshua leads them into Canaan, and they overtake it. That's when this is fulfilled. So he's, he's staking his claim. He's putting everything on the line and getting to this land, this land of promise. And, and he, he didn't turn back the second that God didn't give it to him. He lived the rest of his life in this land in tents, as it said in verse 9. Living in tents, never owning much. Matter of fact, the only piece of land in Canaan that was ever owned under his name was his grave. He bought a hill and he died and he was buried there. That's what he owned. So he's making his way through and, he, and, he, and he's not permanent. He's temporary as he works his way through. And <clears throat> what we read here with, with Jacob and, and Isaac, and where it says that they're heirs with him of the same promise, he's commended because what he did led to be a blessing to others. The commitment, everything that he put on the line paid off. Not maybe for himself in that time. He was faithful. And no doubt he probably had some, some, some sure blessing that he had in his life. But it wasn't fulfilled until centuries and centuries and centuries later. When I think about all this talk of the commitment, all the, the thought of, of us having a stake in the claim, um, the thought of, uh, of me giving something of myself for the gospel, it makes me think of something very strange to think of at, the, at this moment. But... But when I was in high school, I played football. It was one of the uh, sports I played. Um, I started playing my sophomore year, and probably more because of my size than not because of my talent. A few weeks into the season, the coach of the varsity program came up to me in the hallway, Coach Cook. He gave me a clean white jersey, and he said, Corzine, take this. You're going with us on Friday. You're going to dress out. And for any of you who've played sports and had the opportunity to, to play up or dress out, what he's offering me is a chance to dress 
uh, to, to be a part of the team for a day. And, and especially if there's a blowout, either, either by our team winning by a lot or our team losing by a lot, then I'll get a chance to go in and get some snaps. Now, the, after he had told me this, I'm, I'm on like cloud nine. I, I'm, I'm a 15-year-old in high school. I'm going to be playing varsity on Friday. So I'm, I'm walking around the halls, man. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm humble, but I'm really not humble because people are like asking me what I'm doing. And, oh, you know, I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't do that on Friday. I got to play varsity. You know, I got this, <laughs> I got this, this thing I got to do. And, you know, I'm starting to have stuff like that drop in. And, and on Friday, even on the day of the game, we had a, tr- a tradition. Whenever you play, you wear your jersey. And, and so along with all the upperclassmen, I'm wearing my jersey. I'm walking the halls. I'm one of them. Well, we, we go to the game, and uh, unfortunately for my case, the, the game wasn't as far away. Uh, the score wasn't as different as I'd hoped it would be. Uh, it was actually a close game. It was a defensive battle. And so what happened was I, I stood on the sideline for the entire game uh, from whistle to whistle. Uh, I never got a chance to play that night. And we lost the game. Walking off the field, everybody's shaking hands and and guys, guys, the upperclassmen who were, who were the captains and guys under them were, you know, cussing under their breath. Or they, were, they were upset about this. They were mad. I mean, this is either it was a team that we should have beaten or it was a huge blow to their ego that, that we didn't beat them. But me, I'm the guy who's just walking off the field, clean jersey, not, not a drop of sweat on me. This is, this is like September. And, and I go in the locker room. I take the jersey off, take my pads, give the jersey back, go home. My weekend wasn't ruined at all. It made no difference on anything. And the reason why is because though I had looked the part on the outside, though, though, I, though I looked like I belonged, though I even said some things leading up to the fact, when the time came, I wasn't a part of the team. I had no stake in the matter. I, I, I hadn't spent one minute practicing with them. My reputation was clean no matter what happened because in the end I could distance myself from them just as easily as I said I was one of them. All that because I had nothing of myself that was given for the cause, that was given for the game. And so I wonder how often that's us. There are people who, who we see the team that we want to be on, that's a winning team. It's, it, it, it's, it's this group of Christians that we want to be a part of. We want to say that we believe what they believe, and so we do. And, and then we, we look the part. We even come to church on Wednesday nights, and we even like sneak to La Family sometimes on Sundays, and we look really good. But when, when the time comes, when, when it's time for the whistle to blow, we're, we're, we're nowhere to be found. Because w- when it becomes exposed, we're not in. Our chips aren't on the table. If this goes south, there's nothing of, of us that's going to get lost because of it. And so the, the call is this. If, if you are saying that you're one of us, and this is why we, we value covenant membership in Matthias so highly, is because we want to know if we're journeying with people together. We want to know when times get tough, who's going to be with us and who's not. But, but in a bigger sense, much bigger than just in Matthias's lot sense, what do you have at stake for the gospel? It, do your lips ever talk about it outside of this room? Have you ever asked the question to somebody when, when their statement didn't seem to line up? If... If God is telling you to, to go, then go, but are you afraid to go? Um, he, he's asking you to commit in some way, but, but it's too hard to write the check. It's too hard to give your time. It's too hard to, to, to make yourself known to be like one of those people to your friends.
but we have to transition here for a second and think about something. So we've, we've, we've realized that faith, uh, by Abraham's example, leads to obedience, and faith leads to, uh, uh, to commitment. But um, if you know anything about Abraham and the bigger story of who he is, a big thing to know is that he, in many ways he was a failure. If you read on throughout his story, a matter of fact, not a few uh, verses uh, longer even after what we read in Genesis 12, you see that, that twice on two different occasions, working his way through Egypt and back up through uh, Canaan, uh, Abraham tries to pawn his wife off as his sister to try to get his own skin saved so that they won't kill him and take her. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying a, a woman or a wife is a possession, but, but like his most prized possession the most prized thing, the most prized person that he had taken with him, that he waged on this journey, he gave up. Twice. Once to Pharaoh in Egypt and once to King Abimelech. He wrote her off like she was nothing. And that's just two of his failures. There's, more, there's many more to come. But, but he's a failure. So what, going back to the original context of this book of Hebrews, um, th- there had been false teaching at the time of, of rabbis who would say, and teach that Abraham was, was made righteous in the sight of God because he had good works. Because he, he obeyed well. He performed well. But if you look at his story in larger context, you start to realize that this guy did not have good works throughout the case of his life. There, there, there was so much about him that was flawed. There was so much about him that was, that was a failure, that was broken. And so for, for the author of Hebrews to tell them that by faith Abraham was saved, then, then he's got it won. If you're going to lay a case, you're going to play the Abraham card. And, and you may be thinking about something different. Now, I've been calling him Abraham. In the Genesis text, his name is Abram. There's something really significant that happens in Genesis 17. Uh, God approaches Abraham, and, and he says, um, No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of multitude of nations. Abraham means father of multitude. Now, what God does, he doesn't just change his name like on a certificate or something. What he's doing, he's called Abraham to this mission. He's brought him to himself. And then as a result of him being in this, being all in, being sold out for God and for what he's doing, God not only changes his name, but he changes his identity. Who he is completely changes because of this. And that should be the same for us too. So the good news is that that God is using failures like Abraham. Failures like you and like me. To accomplish a plan that won't fail. So moving on to our last verse here, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Whose designer and builder Bless you. <laughs> Whose designer and builder is God. We, we learn first in verse 8 that faith leads to obedience. We learned in verse 9 that faith leads to commitment. Everything's all in. I'm all in for this. Whatever it is, whatever you have, God, I'm in. Completely. Uh, the third thing that we learn here in this verse is that faith leads to fulfillment. Faith leads to fulfillment. Now, what's really interesting about this is that um, if you do the math on timelines and, and kind of what happened throughout Abraham's life <coughs> and when he died and, and what happened in between there, you realize that what God had promised 
Abraham wasn't fulfilled yet when he died. Abraham was promised everything, and he lived the rest of his life in a tent. And his family after him the same, until generations and generations and generations later. It's kind of like he was, it's kind of like being given the deed to Donald Trump's house, but when you show up, you've got to live out in a tent for the rest of your life in, in the front yard, which a tent probably in Donald Trump's house probably would actually probably be a pretty nice tent, I would think. But, <laughs> but there, there, was, there was this idea of temporary fulfillment um, that didn't come, but it was more of an eternal f- fulfillment that he sought. And he still had faith. No matter what I see, God is still who God is, and he's still doing what he's doing, and it's good because he says it is. There's two words here that, that we see back in verse 10 says that he's looking forward to a city that has foundations, an eternal city, a city, a city that won't fall, whose designer and builder is God. Two things we see about this. The word designer is almost synonymous with the word architect, a planner, somebody who's methodical about what he's doing. And, and the word builder is synonymous with maker. What it's saying is that he is anticipating what God is planning and what God is building, what God is doing with his own hands. Using people like Abraham, failures, just like us to do it. And the city that, that, that he's looking forward to, no doubt, um, in, the, in the short term, what was an inhabited Canaan, where, where his descendants uh, ruled, and, and that certainly did happen when Israel took over. But, but if you even know the history of Israel and how this worked out, and if you even know anything about modern-day events happening in Israel, it's not there yet. And I'm not saying that it's just in Israel. What God is doing through the church, his people, Israel, as he's building an eternal city, one that won't fall, one where all things are made right between God and man. And he did that by laying the cornerstone of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, we read that, that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone that's been laid down first. Everything else that's built is built off of him. And those who have hope, who have faith in that will not be put to shame. All throughout the book of Hebrews, this high priestly work of Jesus has been what's been focused in the forebrain of the author. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. Have faith in him. Have faith in him. By faith, these Old Testament characters had faith in God and his promises. Jesus is the greatest promise God ever made. Have faith in that promise. But it it begs the question, would, would we be okay with, with a promise that, that is still a promise, but, but is not fulfilled in the ways that we see it. It's not fulfilled now. It's not fulfilled today, tomorrow, next month, next year. Maybe not fulfilled until the end of our life down the road. Maybe not even fulfilled until after our life. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, for those of you who know me and know my wife, you know that we're expecting uh, a son in January, our first kid. Big, big cheers. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, we're excited, and we're pumped, and, but we're also terrified. I mean, I mean, you know how much a, a child will make your life different? Um, I know that God has tremendous blessings in it, but so often I wake up, and the only thing I can think of is no sleep, no money, no independence, no, no anything else. No more clothes that don't have, like, spit up on them and stuff. I mean, it's... Everything is going to be impacted by this guy. And amidst all that, 
amidst what I want to see in a, in, a, in a here and now. I want to see a, a life that's made easier here and now. I may not see that. It may, it may be pretty hard until he's like 30. <laughs> and it may still be pretty hard for different reasons after that. But, but in the end, here's, here's what all this talk about faith and, and studying Abraham and his situation the fact that he was invested in something and when it didn't seem to pan out, he still had faith that God was doing something greater. Here's what it makes me think of. Um, beyond how, how hard or how difficult raising this kid's going to be, it, it's enough knowing that the total hope, the total reason why we're, we're doing this, why we're having this child, isn't because of the American dream and it's not because of some status quo that we're supposed to just do. We're doing this because we long to see a son that after much prayer and petition for him, that would one day be saved. That, that would bear God's image well. That would be just one more man of God on this earth. And so that others would be blessed through him. Now what that means is, is my focus, my service to God has to be conditioned upon who God is and not my current circumstances. Faith is hard. It's extremely hard. Whether, it's, whether you're in a non-existent place and you just don't know what's happening, whether you're in a fragile place, and, and it's, it, it seems great, but it's, it's, it's this to and fro of, of just greatness and difficulty, greatness and difficulty. And, and if, you're, if you have a tender faith, and it's the same thing of greatness and difficulty, greatness and difficulty, Though it is really hard, just like Abraham, it begins with one step. Now, I don't know what that step is for you, but I know it starts with one. Why don't you guys stand with me as I pray? Father, we, uh, we acknowledge that this, this call to have faith in you, this call to go, this call to give ourselves, this call to, to long for you to answer our prayers, Father, is hard. We acknowledge that faith is hard, that, that what you're calling us to do is so good, but it's so unbelievably difficult. We ask, Father, that you would give us grace to believe more today. Father, wherever we at, if there, if there are people in here tonight who don't know you, I pray that you would give them a spark of faith, just a spark. And Father, for the people who know you, who've known you maybe even for years, would you, would, you, would you give them enough encouragement to take another step? Father, it's by the grace of your son Jesus that we can approach you, his obedience, his commitment, his fulfillment, that we have hope. And so we boast in that. In his name we pray. Amen.